Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut or shortened due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening colour. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Good morning, it's Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss. It's where the shapers of business join the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. My guest today, I'm very pleased to say, is Nigel Birrell, Group CEO at Lotto Land, the fastest growing online lottery company. That's something you probably didn't know. He's a former law and investment banker. Nigel is said to have been instrumental in the largest online gaming deal in history. That's the merging of companies Party Gaming and BWIN. In 2014, he became CEO of the Lotto Land Group, which today employs over 350 people and has 9 million customers and is active across four continents. It's quite a big business. Nigel believes players shouldn't be restricted to one or two lotteries in the country where they live or be forced to wait for a big jackpot to be on offer. And in September 2018, Lotto Land was awarded with a Guinness World Record for the largest online gambling payout ever of 90 million euros. Not bad. We'll be talking to Nigel in a few minutes about revolutionising a market, Lotto Land's unique insurance-based model, and his hope to attract younger audiences. We've also got brilliant music from, amongst others, Lou Donaldson, Dinah Washington, and Ray Charles. That is today's Jazz Shapers. Here's Kurt Elling and Golden Lady. Take me right away That was Kurt Elling with Golden Lady. As I said earlier, my business shaper, I'm very pleased to say, is Nigel Birrell. Uh, hello and welcome. Thank you for coming. Elliot, thank you for having me. Now, you, um, you, you sometimes say I keep this quiet. You were a lawyer. You are a lawyer. I mean, you're a qualified lawyer. And here you are now as a CEO of a major company, having done incredibly big jobs and big mergers of other, other companies too. At what point did you know you didn't want to follow the traditional private practice lawyer route when did you suddenly go there's more to life than this you're right you said lawyers didn't always have the best uh, reputation and i think they're fortunate they were superseded by bankers which i became one of those as well but uh no i, I trained as a lawyer. i did a law degree and did the law school and rest of it and did my articles in the city which is now traineeship i think and it was halfway through that i think i realized that actually it was during a, an, a deal that you were doing with a company called um St. Ives group buying riverside press and the bankers seemed to go off to the wine bar with the client afterwards and we were sent back to the office to draft the contract overnight and had to have it on the banker's desk by nine o'clock in the morning next morning. So I thought, well, I'll give banking a go. That seems a bit more fun than uh, drafting documents all night. So that's kind of where it, where it went from. And actually, I've, now I was qualified. I thought, well, if it doesn't work out, I can go back and become a lawyer. So I moved off into investment banking uh, pretty much two days after I qualified, actually. To... And did you find that you knew enough to make it work? Because, again, people, I mean... Uh, being a lawyer is one thing, being an investment banker I would have thought quite a different proposition. Yeah. I mean, was it just quick, you're, you're a quick learner and you got it, and or you just found actually this was much more you than being a lawyer? Well, it was difficult. You had some advantages of being a lawyer, particularly on the documentation side and the rest of it, but clearly uh, I think accountants made more natural bankers when they first came in because they have much more numerative. Not to say we weren't numerative, I wasn't numerative, but it was knowing the, how balance sheets work and profit and loss accounts work and the rest of it. So that was a bit of a learning curve, to be honest. But then, uh, you know, I had great people around me, great 
uh, mentors above me. So it kind of you know, worked from there, really. And then in terms of now, I'm going to jump forward right now. You're now running a big business. Yeah. Being a CEO of a business and being a director of that business is a very different set of responsibilities, a very different skill set. At what point again did you think, I fancy that? Well, doing just over a decade in the city, investment banking, I got a bit weary of it, to be honest with you. In fact, in the last two years, um, I was doing more marketing than deals, and I quite like the, the, the buzz of the deals. But I was, and I was doing 160-odd flights a year uh, up to glorious places like Helsinki and Stockholm for the day. So, you know, a few hours sleep, back off you go again. And I thought, there's got to be more to life than that. It was pure chance I ended up in a, in a PLC because a friend of mine was a headhunter, and I'd mentioned my sort of desire perhaps to move out at some point in the future. And he said, go and talk to this little, this little company uh, near here, actually, in, in Soho area. Uh, it's quite small, but they're looking for a banker or a lawyer, and you seem to be both. So I just want to be a bit arrogant at the time. You know, it was a bit small for me. I don't think I could do that. But anyway, I went to have uh, lunch with a chap called Peter Orton, who was the founder of this business called Hit Entertainment. And I subsequently discovered years later that he's the world's greatest salesman. So had I known uh, now what I knew then, uh, it might have been slightly different. But he sold me the job on the spot, pretty much. And then so I jumped out of banking and went into, into industry, as they say. And I've, um, we'll come back to lots more from you in a minute. But just for those of you who don't know, Hit Entertainment had the following different brands underneath them. Thomas the Tank Engine, Guinness World Records, Art Attack, Sooty. We will love a bit of sooty. Sweet. Fireman Sam, one of my first child's favourites, and Pingu. And I still want to talk like Pingu. How did you morph from that role into the next role? Because how many years did you spend with HIT? HIT was about six, seven years, but we got to a stage. Unfortunately, Peter developed cancer and um, basically wanted to sell the business. So we were talking to all the usual suspects like Disney and Warner and these sort of people. Um, and we eventually sold it for enough to a private equity group called Apex um, for about an enterprise value of $1.1 billion in the summer of 2005. And I was actually at the Cricket at Lords with a former colleague of mine who had just floated party gaming on the London Stock Exchange in, in June of 05 for £4 billion, which was, I think, the largest float for about four or five years and getting a market cap greater than BA and all the rest of it. And I was just joking about, wouldn't that be great to go and work for a company like that down in the sunshine of Gibraltar and the rest of it? It was literally just a bit of a joke. And he went down to visit um, Gibraltar the following week, actually do a sort of post-IPO wrap-up of things you could improve, a chap called Chris Treneman. And, they, and the CEO and CFO of Party Game at the time, uh, who we subsequently found out both knew me quite well, uh, said they were looking for a deal guy, someone to use that new listing and, and go and actually acquire lots of other companies, you know, the William Hills as well, the Labbrooks or whatever. And the CFO at the time, Martin Weigold, had been CFO of, um, of Fox Kids Europe, who, who I'd known through the industry. And he said, oh, do you think he might be available? And so then they summoned me to come down for a quick interview. And uh, that was an interesting experience because I had to leave at four in the morning and I... In a pitch black bedroom, picked out my thickest wool suit without realizing it. And of course, arrive in Gibraltar, and it's about 32 degrees centigrade <laughs> with double cuffs and cufflinks and the rest of it. So that was a bit slightly unpleasant, but uh, yeah, it's great fun. And thinking about the world of, of children's entertainment, they're moving into gambling. At some point, does it not really matter what the sector is, or was there a sense of, and what I mean by that is the skills that you have to develop as, as, a, as a deal guy, as someone going yeah. to acquiring businesses. Is it much more about just pure economics? Yeah, if you're a deal guy, then you're doing a deal. And it's a question of what does two and two make five, I think. But in terms of a, a business guy, it's, you're selling a product. And whether it's a you know, DVD for Bob the Builder or whether it's a, a ticket to the Powerball Lottery in the US, it's the same sort of principle, really. Just different market, different audience, of course. But uh, it was quite interesting because, you know, it's going from sort of entertaining and educating children to 
online gaming was a bit of a bit of a, a stretch and maybe not one the wife used to talk about so often to to the friends and stuff like that and in, and in terms of those early days when you started acquiring companies was that it sounded like you that buzz that you mentioned did that buzz come back yeah absolutely and I'd go back to Hitter and Peter Orton's pure vision we had one fantastic product called Bob the Builder which was knocking you know knocking the ball out of the park and he was worried it might be a fad and therefore he wanted to use our high p rating at the time to use our shares to go and acquire other other properties to create a broad portfolio, which in hindsight was a great decision because Bob did slightly come off the, off the as wall. As everything does. As everything does, as yeah. this moment. And, but we acquired some other properties, and you mentioned a few earlier, but Thomas the Tank Engine is a great example of something that's been around for 80-odd you know, years, and, and it still is going from strength to strength. So we needed properties like that to boost the portfolio. So mm. you had to have a logic behind what you're doing, but the, you know, dealing with um, the rights owners of some of these properties, you know, the, the Audrey family, the Reverend William Audrey who created Thomas, they had an interest in the business, so you had to go deal with them, as well as dealing with the corporate guys in the suits who actually owned the business uh, behind the main rights. So it was, yeah, very interesting in theory. And, and in going moving on to gaming, exactly the same thing. You know, it's, you're dealing with, you know, it's the buzz of the deal I think I really enjoyed, yeah. And in terms of those first few deals that you did once you were in place, I mean, obviously the interview went well. And it was easy because they said, "Was it?" I mean, when when they found you, did they say why why they wanted you? Well, I I, subsequently, potentially, but I, I think what was the big shock for me was rather than being an advisor, being actually a principal, mm. um, you, you're left holding the deal at the end of the deal. So, whereas an advisor rides in, gets his check, and walks off, and perhaps looks at the next deal for you, you actually got to then integrate that business and make it work, and the buck stops at you if it doesn't. So. That's what I found attractive about the job, actually. You're not just being doing the deal. You're actually then going to make it work within the company, integrating the people, um, you know, making the savings if you have to do that. And you um, liked that, that first time yeah, you had to integrate yeah, a role. Yeah, yeah. and, and what was it that appealed? It was just seeing the job through to the end, really, and creating something, making two and two make five, literally. So you bring in uh, Thompson Tank Engine, the business. We closed down the head office of that company, which is based down in Southampton. We brought those people who were prepared to move and we wanted to move up to London, made a lot of savings through that, but running the Thomas infrastructure through the infrastructure we already had, and then creating that and making that even stronger in America, where we had a good footprint as well. So, yeah, taking it from day one, where you're trying to convince someone to sell you the thing, to actually put it into operation and seeing the, you know, the benefits at the end of it. Stay with me for more from my guest, Nigel Burrell. He's coming back in a couple of minutes. But first, we're going to hear some words of advice for your business from our programme partners at Mishkondorea. Hi, I'm Daniel Avener, CEO of MDR Brand Management, the fourth non-legal business entity that's been set up as part of the Mishkondorea Group. And we help companies build commercial value for their brands and intellectual property across the business world. Today, there have never been more complex challenges for companies in the global marketplace, especially when brand owners are looking to grow both in the UK and internationally. One area that should be considered when looking to expand your brand is brand licensing and franchise development. By harnessing the equity and the awareness of a brand, licensing and franchise development can often be an extremely cost-effective low-risk strategy, one that can allow you to expand into new geographies and global markets, launch new product categories. It can be an effective marketing tool to create new connections and consumer messaging, bring a brand to life through branded consumer experiences, and also protect a brand owner's trademark. MDR Brand Management can assist in all aspects of the licensing and franchise process to ensure that you generate significant and long-term revenue streams for many years ahead. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business. 
but it's personal. There are many ways for you to enjoy all our former Jazz Shapers and indeed to hear this programme again. You can ask Alexa to play Jazz Shapers and there you can hear many of the recent programmes. Or if you pop Jazz Shapers into iTunes or your preferred podcast platform, you can enjoy the full archive there too. But back to today's guest, it's Nigel Burrell. He's the group CEO at Lotto Land, the fastest growing online lottery provider. I keep saying that. Tell me um, about the business you're in now and tell me about the role. I mean, you've come through, it almost feels like, Nigel, you've had three or four really fantastic slabs of experience which keep mm. building up to this inevitable position where you're running every part of the business, whether it's acquisitions, whether it's uh, systems, whatever it might be, and obviously marketing and so on and so forth. What's it like being the top, top, top guy? Well, it's great. I mean, we have a fantastic company. It's only been going about five years and it's going from strength to strength. Lots of young, vibrant, enthusiastic employees around the world who are you know taking the business to the next level. So it's, the job's very easy, really. It's just sort of helping to marshal those guys to you know, to keep keep the growth going. Is it really though? I mean, this is a big business. It is a big business. Making, I, making I, it sound pretty straightforward. It was it was it was established before I in a small way before I joined it. Um, it was founded in Germany, then moved to the UK, and then moved to Gibraltar. Then it really started cracking cracking on. I actually met the one of the founders um, in the middle of 2013, and he was looking for some advice, and he said, "Could I come and join him and sort of help him, you know, take it to the next level?" And I became a non executive director for for a few months, and then I think. I assume he appreciated the advice because he started to ask me to take a bigger, bigger role in the business. And then it kind of morphed into the CEO role. But yeah, we were pretty small then, and uh, you know we've we've taken it to a much higher level now. But it's basically about the product. The product is it sells itself. It's um, allowing you to play the lottery around the world without actually being in the country where that lottery is. So I think of it very much as lottery tourism. In fact, one of the founders, his idea of it was because he used to have nephews and nieces. He used to buy lottery tickets for Christmas for them. He lived in in Munich in, in Bavaria. Didn't have a very very big, uh, high jackpots in that lottery. He used to drive over the border into Austria to buy tickets for the Euro jackpot, which had much bigger jackpots. And I think he thought, well, why don't we set this up and you know, allow people to, to buy tickets elsewhere? So right now we offer around about 30 of the biggest lotteries in the world. And basically you as a, a British guy who wants to play the Powerball in the US, normally you'd have to go to the US to buy that ticket. Yeah. What we do is offer you that ticket through us. You're actually betting against us. So if your numbers come up and you get exactly the same numbers that win the actual jackpot that week, we pay you, not not the lottery. And we we insure that through um, through a number of insurance products, including an ILS, which is a insurance-linked security, a cap bond, which we have a 120 million uh, euro cap bond. So basically, you you can any day or time, day or night, can buy a ticket with us for the forthcoming jackpot and win with us. So you're hoping nobody wins. Well, we like winners actually, to be honest, because that that sort of validates the model. Because we have our detractors in the market. Clearly, some you know, state monopolies aren't very keen with us because we're comp- competition, we're a disruptor. Um, one of their great criticisms is that oh, these guys are making it all up and they haven't got any winners. And if they did have a winner, they wouldn't be able to pay them. But you can. So we can, and we proved that particularly in um, June last year. I think you mentioned in the introduction. Yeah, you know, we had a 90 million euro winner, which was lovely. She was a early 30s lady on benefits, a cleaner from Berlin. You know, so these are the stuff dreams are made of, mm. really. And even then, uh, some of our competitors in Germany were saying this is all a bit of a bit of a you know show. They don't really exist. So we did lots of affidavits and things like that. And the Guinness World Record sort of seal of approval, if you like, they had to do an awful lot of due diligence on this. So we were very keen to get that to prove that we actually not only this was a winner, we'd paid her and all the rest of it. So um, yeah, sounds, sounds like you don't really mind the detractors. Are you quite? It looks like there's a bit of relish in your eyes in yeah. the sense that. You know what? Bring it on! You've got this really strong product. It sounds like technology is critical yeah. in this. Well, no publicity, no publicity, bad publicity, as they say. So, yeah, yes. the more people talk about it, the more people say, "Oh, what is this lost land thing? Let's get on and have a have a go at that." But uh, technology is key. So we we try to innovate. Well, that's our great mantra. Really, is is taking the sort of fairly old fashioned state lotteries and bringing in new products. So we got products where you can double your jackpot. 
you can protect your numbers if someone else wins. I could think of nothing worse than seeing your numbers come up on the TV for 100 million jackpot and find out there's 10,000 winners. So we can do that and protect that so you get the whole jackpot. We, you know, we, tell you, we tell you when you win. So you don't have to worry about losing your ticket or something like that. And you've read about the stories of people washing them yeah. in the washing machine and things. So it's just it's about innovation. We, we use our insurance product now as well to uh, deliver our own products. So say the Euro Millions jackpot hits at 185 million, it resets at 15 the following week. And everyone's quite bored of that. People want 100 millions. That's what really gets people to, to, uh, to play on the site. So we will then bring up our own jackpot, 100 million that week, matching the Euro Millions numbers, whereas the Euro Millions is only 15 million. So we can bring our own products in and give people what they want, which is the ability to win life-changing amounts of money, uh, albeit at very long odds. But they, you know, it's all about dreaming. And as one of my colleagues said, it's, you know, he often didn't really want to know the, 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 the results because it was all about dreaming that he might win rather than actually finding out he hadn't won. So it's all about that. I want to ask you, we talked about it briefly, the whole reputational thing. Again, when you went to law school, they didn't talk to you about that. When you went through all the various roles you went through as investment banking, obviously you, you, you see other people dealing with stuff in the media. That's now on your desk. Do you find that you've had to reconfigure the way you're, you look at things because you're now looking through the lens and different optics of how people might view, A, the world of gambling, B, this Gibraltar-based business, C, just making stuff up. I mean, you must see the whole gamut of things. And yeah. if so, how have you learned how to deal with that bit? Yeah, well, reputation is key, as you know, and you've got to sometimes sacrifice profit for to make sure the reputation is there. And one of the jobs of the CEO, I think, is making sure the rest of the people below you know that. It's not about necessarily maximising the profit if you're going to do it at the expense of someone. So gambling is in particularly uh, in the news a lot lately for responsible gambling, which is kind of a mantra we've signed up to. But last thing we want is any of our customers having a problem. The good news in lottery, it's kind of a, I don't even think it's gambling, it's more sort of a gaming type of thing. You know, mm. People don't necessarily expect to win, it's more of an aspirational thing, as I mentioned earlier. But you've still got to be careful that no one gets addicted to it. And um, and a lot of the big companies in, in the UK, facing ones in particular, have been in the news a lot lately. So it's all about that reputation. One thing we don't want is a headline of someone who's stolen money from their boss and started... Uh, using that money to buy lottery tickets with us. So it's a lot about verification of your customers, knowing who they are, making sure they have a problem, knowing your VIPs. Um, so any small error there might lead to a black mark against the company, and that, that, would, be, that would be terrible for us. And take it from another angle, we talked about the, the big payout that we did in, uh, in Germany for 90 million. Paying and paying fast is key as well. So we don't want any bad reputation that we don't do that. So that's why we brought in this insurance link security, which is a fully collateralized product, which basically means that we can call on the cash immediately providing your liquid basically correct yeah. so the institutions that have put the money in there have given a collateral letter of credit or something so we can actually call as soon as um, an accountancy firm in our case pwc verify the numbers are correct and they've properly they put the in money. the money's gone. there it's gone so we pay probably quicker than the state lotteries actually and, in, and to make all this and people listening we're going oh a collateralized thing over here and it sounds really too complicated obviously it's your world in terms of people it must be critical that you hire fantastic people because this is a big and slick operation from that perspective, A, I'm assuming they're very good, but B, from a management point of view, how would they describe you? What kind of characteristics do you bring to that leadership role? Yeah, well, they are good. And, and the great thing about being Gibraltar, actually, was that we have 3,500 uh, people in the gaming industry in Gibraltar, which is the biggest industry in the private sector. So you've got, and companies have been around for many, many more years than us, so we've got some very experienced people we can hire. And, and it's not just from Gibraltar, we'll bring people in from outside there as well. Um, second part because what they think of me I think they think I'm a good collaborative person I'm very much a team player I've always been interested in team sports rather than individual sports and it's trying to make the collective the strongest we can possibly be and uh, trying to inspire and, and, and mentor people to come to the next level 
And if you have doubts, because Nigel, like anyone else, has doubts about what they're doing, whether it's right, however smart they are and how much experience they've got, how do you manage that? Well, I have doubts about people all the time because you sometimes... But I mean about, about decisions you need to make. What, what happens then? Oh, I've got some senior colleagues who... Um, fortunately, I've been lucky to be in gaming now for 14 years and many of the senior colleagues around me have worked with me before. And uh, one of the great things when you've done that for a while is you, you know how good people are. So you try and get the best people around you. I read a book by Jack Welsh, actually, who said the first thing he did was hire a top HR person and then put the best people around him. Some people are frightened of hiring people who are cleverer than them. Mm. Certainly not me. I think it's much better to have people who are good, and that's, that's key to it, have a great team. Stay with me for my final chat with Nigel. Plus, we're playing a track from Ray Charles. That's all coming up in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Georgia, Georgia, the whole day through. That was Ray Charles with Georgia on my mind. I've got Nigel Beryl just for a few more minutes. I mentioned the question around doubt, uh, and you said, and I think you very astutely, well, I just surround myself with, with great people. What about stress? You strike me as a very relaxed person. I mean, obviously focused, but it looks like you know how to also switch off. Has that been something you've learned over the years or has that been something that you always had? Because people often look at CEOs of businesses and, and directors and big shareholders, you know, senior big shareholders and they go, how do they do it? How do they cope with that level of responsibility? No one really knows how people perceive you but I've always felt reasonably relaxed and, and laid back about things and I mean, living and working in the Mediterranean probably helps that, you know, the sort of manual. He looks approach. very healthy, <laughs> horribly, but, uh, annoyingly. No, so I think if you stress out, it's not going to help. I'm just going to deal with the problem and move on, I think. That's the key, and don't look back. And I think that's, that's the key. Don't get something you know, festered away. An old boss of mine uh, named Jim Ryan used to say, bad news doesn't get better with age. So literally deal with it and move on. And then if you, don't, if you get rid of these problems, however you deal with them, then you can't, they can't fester away and stress you out. Uh, and where, where are things going to go for you, Nigel, in this business over the next few years? Because it's an ambitious business, it's grown yeah. fast. What happens yeah. in the next chapter? Well, it's privately owned, and obviously our owners will want an exit at some point, or partial exit. So I think the next chapter will be an IPO, probably, or a sale of the company. Uh, not Definitely not looking to sell particularly, but people knock on your door from time to time. But probably an IPO in, the London, in London within the next couple of years, I think, is probably the most likely outcome. And the one thing I always ask people about is the money bit, because often I, I meet all sorts of people and people are driven by different things, and it's rarely just the money, but it must be a big part of what you do is that there's going to be upside for you at some point. Yeah, well, I'm not a major owner of the business, actually, but I will get upside, clearly, if we do an IPO or some sort of liquidity event. Uh, that, but that isn't the great driver. I just enjoy doing what I do and have a lot of fun doing it, and I think you know, we're, we're setting up a great business and building it very quickly, so I think that's, that's more the fun, really. He's got a smile on his face at this point, by the way. He's telling the truth, I can tell. I can do my, my delighted detectors here. That's really good to hear, and it's clear that obviously you're doing a really good job. Thank you for your time. Good luck with whatever happens next, sale, IPO, okay. or whatever, or just more of the same. I'm yeah. sure that's fine as well. Sure, fine, yeah. Just before I let you go, what's your song choice, and why have you chosen it? Well, I've chosen Black and White Rag by Winifred Atwell, and I was thinking about why to choose this song, and I was at, had to be at Glen Eagles Hotel last Monday night. Uh, I hadn't been there for 40 years. The last time I'd been there was with my late father, and we played snooker into the night, and he used to always watch Pop Black in the 80s on BBC Two, something I never could quite work out, because I always thought it rather boring, actually. And this was the theme tune for Pop Black, so it's, it's happy memories of time spent with my father. So I think that's why I've chosen it. Mm-hmm. 
was Black and White Rag from Winifred Atwell, the song choice of my business shaper today, Nigel Birrell, someone who started as a lawyer, became a banker, and eventually moved into management. Fantastic way of building your capabilities. Someone who said, don't stress, there's no point. And really importantly, when things go wrong, he said, don't look back. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a great weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers on iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazzshapers.